turn to Luke chapter 24. If you want to power on your Bible or turn to the one in your book rack. And if you're new to the Bible or you're new to Christianity, Easter for us is about celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. It's when we remember that he overcame the grave, death itself. And the whole Holy Week, this last week, is preparing. He comes in on Palm Sunday on a donkey. They declare him this king, but then he's debating with the Jewish leaders in the temple courtyard for several days during the week. And then that Friday comes where he's taken. He's beaten and he's berated and he's whipped with a cat of nine tails 39 times, made to carry a tree trunk a mile up a hill where he would be crucified in front of his friends and family. And so Good Friday was actually a really tragic day. And these days later, we celebrate that he rose on the third day from the grave. Now, some of you, like math majors, you're going uh, Friday to Sunday. That's two days, okay? Uh, but the Jewish calendar, they would consider because it happened on those days, that's a total of three days. People always get confused by that. But that we're celebrating and remembering this miraculous work that he did. Now, if you're like, oh, that was 2,000 years ago, they probably always believed people rose from the grave. No, even in that culture, no one. The one thing they knew with certainty was, when you die, you die. Nobody's coming back. And so every scholar agrees, if he didn't actually historically raise from the grave, we don't have much to celebrate as a church. But the interesting thing was, every single person, the Jewish authorities, the Roman authorities, the soldiers, even his own disciples, the 12, his family, all thought he was dead for good, like not coming back. And that was it. And yet when he overcame the grave itself, it means for us there is no separation between us and God because of his atoning sacrifice on the cross and that every single person in this room, if we surrender our life over to the lordship of Jesus, will spend eternity with God and can experience him in our life right now, today. Then in a moment, in a little while here, we're going to pray, and we're going to acknowledge that we believe that God is not just some distant God, but that he is actually present with us in the room right now because of the work of Jesus that we're remembering during the season. Now, there's been kind of this theme for us as we prepared over the last several weeks for Easter, and it's been this one word, glory. And I'm going to be honest with you, as we talk about the, the, the story of Easter and the glory of God that came there, it was not something that Pastor Darren and I were like, yeah, let's teach on that. I've never taught on it. And as I was studying this, I was really struck by how often it actually mentions this word in the Old and the New Testament. Over 500 times the word glory is mentioned. And not just the mention, like in the Old Testament, the glory of God, if you stepped into his presence, you would essentially fall over dead. No one could stand in the presence of God in his glory. It was so bright and so awe-inspiring, no one could handle it. Even in the Old Testament, the, the Jewish rabbis, the high priest, when he would go into the most holy of the holies, and the, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and the Ten Commandments, you may be like, I don't know anything about that in the Bible. Yes, you do, because you've seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it's in there. And they at the presence of the Lord, if they did something wrong in his presence, there were bells on the road because he would fall over dead and they had a hook. Literally, I'm not making this up. They had a hook they pull him out with because you don't get in the presence of God. His glory was too strong. I started thinking about, like, that's a word that many of us in our culture, we, we don't use that often until we think about certain things. I began to think about where do we see people living for glory in our culture? 
So I decided, let's define the word. And I did a quick Google search. You can do the same thing. And the word glory, there's a couple of definitions. And the first one is high renown or honor won by notable achievements. It's like you do something really notable. People go, oh, man, that's glorious, amazing. Or number two, magnificence or beauty. You look on at something, and it's so beautiful, so glorious. It brings a, you know, a painting or a work of art, a song, a film that you watched, and it speaks to you, and you shed tears because of the magnificent beauty that it has. We understand glory. For some of us, we live for glory in our culture in different ways. I was trying to think of where do we live for culture? Well, the, the number one thing that came to my mind, this may not be to your mind, but when I think of like living for the glory days, I think of high school football. Anybody out there, high school football, living in those glory moments? Uh, the non-athletic people are at this service, but... I actually didn't play high school football. I played other sports, but uh, football, you know, that gets, like, you live for those Friday night lights, and some people, you have friends and family that they're still living the glory days from, like, 50 years ago when they were 17 years old. And we live, like, that's, that's, that's some glory right there. And, that, like, the pinnacle of that, right, if you're, like, a sports person, if we're really honest, you know, is to think of, like, Michael Jordan, right, all the rings he's won and all of the magnificent glory in the sports world he has. And, so can we just settle this for just a moment? Uh, and I, we got pictures of this, if we put the picture of Michael Jordan. Some, some of you, uh, yeah, look at that. Can we just settle, if we can speak any truth this morning, that there is no doubt that MJ is better than LeBron. Can we just... <laughs> let, 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 cheers for that. Jesus rose from the grave. MJ better than LeBron. Woo! Yeah. Because we know real glory in our culture. Uh, you know, but maybe you're like, I am not a sports world. That is too, so the 2000s. Like, we live in the 21st century, and, you know, nerds rule the day. And, like, glory is Steve Jobs, okay? Right? Steve, like, we all have something in our pocket today that was provided for by Steve Jobs himself. I mean, that is notable achievement. Absolutely. Or maybe for some of you, it's not Steve Jobs. It's Joanna Gaines. <laughs> Woo! From Fixer Upper, I, I have yet to ever meet a woman who didn't go, oh, I just want to hang out with Joanna. <laughs> Her and I, we'd be such good friends. We'd talk it up. We'd chat it up. Oh, because she, she's so fun and, and so sweet at this kind at the same time and smiling all the time. And then she's this powerful businesswoman, right? TV show, all this brand, all this stuff. And in the middle of it all, she raises like 13 Jesus-loving kids. <laughs> That's some glory. I want to be, that's a notable achievement. I want to be like that. Or maybe it's, that's not you. You love funny people. Any funny people in the room and like notable achievement to you. If you could be like somebody who was glorious, it might be like Kevin Hart, okay? And you're like, you just mentioned Kevin Hart on Easter weekend? Yes, it did. And I want to tell you, <laughs> we're just going to be real. It's for some of you like, man, if I, if I could be, well, not like Kevin Hart's size, right? You don't want to be five foot two inches. But then it kind of hit me this weekend, and I shared this at the last sort of hope this is okay. I realized we kind of got like the white Kevin Hart leading us in worship every weekend. No? Too much? Eric's hilarious if you get to know him, by the way. And, and he's literally like an inch shorter than me, and I get to make jokes about it. But like, Kevin, he is hilarious, right? Like, he is so, if I could be funny like that, then I will have done something with my life that matters. 
What I find interesting is uh, Jesus actually finds glory in a much different way. And all those people, I'm not saying anything bad about, I mean, let's Joanna Gaines, amazing woman of God, right? Like, but the way that Jesus finds glory is not in the achievements that the world deems popular or powerful, but it was actually in the humble surrender of his own life. And I want to show it to you. I never caught this in the resurrection story before. I don't know why. Maybe you have, but studied this a lot. I've never caught this. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Are we ready to study God's word, church? Come on now. It says this in verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. We know them as angels. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And this miraculous thing occurs that that was not supposed to happen. No one expected it to happen. Not the men, they, the, his closest disciples, the 11, they don't even show up to the tomb because they are so distraught, hiding in the upper room in Jerusalem, fearful for their own lives, that there's no way I'm even going to show up to the tomb. Only the faithful women, praise God, show up that day. Yeah, give it a woo, but then don't give too much woo because even they get it wrong. Because what did they carry with them when they came to the tomb? Spices. Why spices? Because they knew that body was dead. And they're coming to treat the body with the spices just to preserve it a little bit longer. They're astounded. They're flabbergasted. He's not here. And then the the angels tell him, remember how he told you this? How would you guys forget? We drift so quickly, don't we? You you can look online. That was last year's message. I want to look at something different this year. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then he remembered, they remembered his words. Like, oh yeah, he told us that. So then here's, I'm going to fill in the gaps here, and we're going to go all the way down to these kind of odd verses in verses 25 to 27. What happens next is, like the, the, the Marys, the women, they run back to the upper room, and they tell the fellas, and they're like, you cannot believe this. He's not, his body is gone. He is risen from the dead. And they naturally believe, right? No, 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 no. They don't be like, no way that happened. In fact, Peter, we know in Luke 24, tells us Peter, but John in his gospel tells us it's two of them, actually. Him and Peter take off running to the tomb. By the way, I love the, the Bible's amazing. It's a whole lot of fun. John is the only one to note, not only were there two people, but John was actually the first one there which is a little rip on Peter because Peter was about 10 to 15 years older than John. Most scholars believe, like, hey, old guy, I was there first. And they get to the tomb, and then they see the body gone, and now they worship. No. They get to the tomb, and they're like, somebody stole the body. What is going on here? Right? That they had not anticipated or expected this. He had done something particularly miraculous that would require the power of Almighty God. And we know Jesus is fully God and fully human. But I want to show you in this next little passage something that I caught. Verses 25 to 27. 
See, there's a couple of disciples walking on this road to this town called Emmaus. And not one of the 11, most likely, but they are standing there discussing everything that has occurred over the last few days. And Jesus overhears them, and they don't realize it's Jesus. And I just love it. It's like he walks up to you, he's like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, where have you been? He's like, well, let me tell you where I've been. But in that moment, they tell him, Jesus, we thought he was the Savior. He died, and now they can't find his body, and they don't know what to make of it. And And then Jesus says this to them in verses 25 to 27. He says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe. I grew up around church, around Christianity. I was familiar with the story of Jesus. I was not familiar with the presence of God. I hated going to church. I didn't get it. We sit there, we stand up, we sing songs. I don't do that any other place. Why am I doing this? And then, like, somebody talks at you, and then I'm like, go home. Like, I didn't get it. And I didn't get that it was about not just people on a weekend and a service like this, but it was actually about the presence of God in our daily lives for all eternity. And he says this. He's like, you're so slow to believe. Then this next verse is what really struck me. Verse uh, 26 did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then, you see that? What's it say? And then enter his glory. Like he was fully God and fully human beforehand. How is it now that he's entering into his glory? Like what did, when did that occur? When did Jesus go from the humiliation of the work on the cross to the exaltation and the glory of a king? And, you know, some scholars believe it was at the resurrection, but I heard R.C. Sproul say this, a famous theologian, and it really struck me. The moment where everything changes is actually when he is crucified, which Jesus just said there, I had to suffer these things in order and be crucified in order to enter his glory, to fulfill the purpose his heavenly father. Remember when he's in the garden, he says, let not my will be done, but yours be done. I submit to your will, heavenly father. And it's in that moment then that he moves and he gets crucified. And then what would happen on the cross, this was a criminal's death. And you would slowly slink down over the weight of holding yourself up and you would get shallower and shallower breaths and you would die as asphyxiation after you have inhaled too much carbon monoxide. And to speed the process up, the criminals, they would walk by and break the legs so that they could no longer hold their body up. But Jesus, because he is so badly beaten, he actually dies, gives up his spirit at three in the afternoon before the other two criminals who are crucified next to him, and they never break his legs, just as scripture prophetically had said for hundreds of years. And in that moment, the temple curtain is torn in two. There is no longer a barrier between us and God. Anybody can experience the presence of God in their life. And what occurs next, I never really put this together. I knew all of that. When they would take the bodies, what they would do was they would take the criminal off of the cross and they would take him and throw him into the town dump where there was a fire always burning. And this, va- this valley where the town dump was outside the city was called the Valley of Hinnom. The Greek word for it was Gehenna, which is translated today as hell. 
Now, we don't believe that was the literal place, but it, it was used as a metaphor to talk about this literal place the Bible descri- describes as hell. And look, it's not going to be turn or burn weekend, so chill out for a second. But they would take the criminal, they would throw it into the, the refuse, and it would burn there. But that's not what happened to Jesus. This rich guy, Joseph of Arimathea, who had become a follower of him, he gets permission to take the body and he puts it into a tomb. And not just any tomb, a wealthy guy's tomb. It's, it's essentially like a king's burial. And you saw in that opening video as they're astounded when she walks under this big room that the body is not there, that this was like a family mausoleum or tomb. They, they would have a place carved that you would lay the body on, and then over the time, you would come and treat it, and when it had decayed, you would eventually take the bones and place it in a basket or a jar or an urn, and you would place it somewhere in the tomb, and the entire family would be buried in that place. But this was a fresh-cut tomb, and he's the first one, and after he is given a king's burial, it is in that moment that the exaltation process begins. And so in uh, this passage in Luke 24, verse 26 When he says, I had to suffer these things and be crucified before I could experience my glory, he only when he submitted to the will of his father did he fully become what God anticipated him to be. And so the question I want to ask you is this, whose glory are you living for? Whose glory are you living for? Will you pray with me? God, in the second half of this, if we dissect what that glory that you instilled in us in the original creation and that we rebelled against you and you now are restoring and the eternal glory to come. We just want to pause on Easter Sunday and acknowledge the presence of your Holy Spirit in the room with us right now. We know you're not just distant, God, but you are here. And you have been speaking to us long before we walked into this room. So take my words away, God, if there's anything in Scripture that you would love to speak to us this morning, may we receive it openly Make us vulnerable enough to do it, God. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. I changed this message in the last couple of days. I had something that happened to me. It started on Wednesday and culminated on Friday. And it really made me think differently about why this is really important. On Wednesday, I was in a meeting, and I started having this really sharp pains inside my head. I'd never had anything like that before, and it kind of freaked me out a little bit. And for the last two years, my wife has been telling me, something is wrong with your head, <laughs> which I know every wife says, but like, she was concerned, and she's like, you need to go to the doctor, you need to do something, because sometimes I would wake up with like, oh, my head hurts, and I don't even remember it, but she's like, something's wrong. So I had these pains, and then the next couple of days, I had a lot of sinus pressure from the weather and all this other stuff, and she was very good. She's like, you need to go get your head checked out, get one of those CT scans or MRIs or whatever it is that the doctors do. And I'm like, nope, not doing it. So for two days, I didn't do anything. And then yesterday, or excuse me, on Friday, I went to get my hair freshened up for Easter Sunday, right? And uh, my barber, or she's actually a, uh, a Christian. She was concerned, and she, I told her the story, and she's like, you should listen to your wife. I know two guys that are your age or younger that have had strokes just in the last year. Then I start getting a little freaked out, right? And so I thought, well, I better go to the movies. So I went to the movies instead (laughs) to get my mind on something else. And Shazam was really funny and kind of a cool movie. But I walked out of there and I suddenly realized like something doesn't feel right. And then like I started freaking out and I'm like, maybe my wife's right. Maybe all of a sudden there's something wrong with my head. So 
I'm like, I'm going to go do something about this. And I drove over to the ER and I'm like, I am not going into the ER. Last time I felt weird and I went into the ER because my stomach hurt, I come out with no appendix. I'm going to walk in today, I'm going to come out with no brain. So <laughs> sat there in the car and then finally it hit me like, but what about my kids? Like what if something is, and we all have family members who have experienced things like this. So it became real and it went from kind of like, oh, I don't know, to like, man, this is serious. And I went into the ER and man, I, I, they start like panicking. What if he's having a stroke and all this stuff? And praise God, uh, they did do a CT scan. I do have a brain and uh, everything was completely normal. There was nothing that they could see at least that was wrong. And so this felt so much better and relieved and, and was still not sure what I had to, what caused it all. But I, uh, I'll tell you, in a moment like that, I know this sounds silly, but when you're faced with, man, what if this is real? When you're faced with death or your own mortality, it, it changes the way that you think. And I thought about my kids, and then I thought about how much your heavenly father lo- loves you way more than I love my kids. Like, if you walked in here today, you feel like nobody loves you. Your heavenly father created you. He calls you your son or daughter. Even if you don't know him, even if you've got him like this, and you want him at a distance, he's going to pursue you and pursue you and pursue you. He has since the beginning of time because he loves you. You're his kid. He created you. And was faced with that mortality issue, I was like, man, this stuff matters. Because I believe this to be real and authentic. Easter matters to those of us who are gathered here this weekend, and even those that aren't. And so I want to simply teach really quickly three simple points. And the first one, the big idea is that you were meant to be glorious. The way that the presence of the glory of God and is that the power and authority that you were meant to reflect him to the world. You were meant to be glorious. The original, number one, if you're taking notes, the original glory in Genesis 1.27. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. You were created in the image of God. In the book of Genesis, this creation account, the only thing that was very good was humankind. We have fallen a long way since then, haven't we? And some of you are going, oh, you don't understand. Like, <laughs> nothing glorious about me in my life. No original glory here. Like, you don't understand, like, the things in my life. If you saw my marriage, my dating habits, my relationship, the things I inhale, the things I digest, the things that I do in my, you would no way, no glory here. Every single person here, the Bible teaches us, is not perfect. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 teaches us, no one in here, not me, not anybody, no one in here is perfect. But God has not given up on you. Number two, if you're taking notes, he didn't give up. He, he came to restore the original glory, the original intent for you. And I love 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, as it talks about we were created with the original glory, and then he's, he's not giving us. We're going from glory to glory. He's going to keep trying to restore us into his original image. And all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The God did not give up sent his only son so that anybody who surrenders their life to him could be forgiven, atoned, covered up for our mistakes by his work on the cross because he overcame death itself by raising from the grave. We can live eternally in heaven with him and we can experience God at work in his presence in our life today. There is no barrier between us and him. And so we are not perfect this side of heaven, but we get a greater and greater glimpse of God at work in us. And in a dark, broken world, don't we need a little bit more of the light of God in our time? 
to address all the animosity and hate and violence and pain and suffering and brokenness. See, I, I realize we're all broken. In fact, it really hit me this week, all the tragedy that happened with the cathedral there in Paris. My wife posted a, a picture of uh, when we were actually there, and I'm kind of embarrassed, but some of you guys know when we uh, first got married, we couldn't afford to go on a fancy honeymoon, so we saved up for a year as poor people got really stingy, and, and we were able to go on our dream honeymoon to Paris, France. I got a picture of us in front of the Eiffel Tower there. It was amazing, and we, uh, that was a long time ago. Um, but, you know, I was reminded of it this week because my wife tagged me in this picture because of the tragedy that happened at the cathedral. If you got the picture of the cathedral there, and that is a handsome picture right there. But some of you who have been attending longer have heard the story of this trip when we went to the Louvre and I lost my hat. You guys, you guys heard that before? So I want to show you the picture of the day that we went into the Louvre there. It's this famous museum. Great, that is a stern-looking photo right there, isn't it? <laughs> greatest museum, greatest works of art anywhere in the world. Supposed to be an amazing day. I went in there for multiple football fields. It's humongous under the ground. And I had this hat before we had gone that was very valuable to me. It was an expensive hat. It was very cold in February in Paris, and it had a thermal lining for ski trips, and it was a really cool-looking hat, and I cannot emphasize how cool this hat was enough. And I had it in my pocket in the Louvre, and as we walked the miles underground, I lost it. And so we went to the lobby, and my wife's like, where's your hat? And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I got, I've lost the hat. And I was like, i got to go find it. And she, in her care and compassion, said, we can't go find your hat. This place is humongous. You'll never find it. And so then me, being a rookie husband in my idiocy, said, oh, that's fine. Then you stay here. And I left my crying wife in the lobby of the Louvre for about 45 minutes. Went through the whole place looking for a hat, never found it, and came back belittled. And we're still talking about it 12 years later. And then my wife, this week, posts that picture of me in front of the cathedral, and somebody asks, is that the hat? <laughs> and my wife writes back, ha, 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 yeah, that's the hat. <laughs> the only problem is, that's not the hat. That was the replacement hat, which just shows once again your lack of concern for me losing the hat in the first place. And 12 years later, I'm still having an argument with my wife about a hat. How broken are we? We need the restoration of our creator and our redeemer. And it hit me because some of us, we feel like we're not that glory. Look on me with beauty and wonder. Because you don't understand where the glory comes from, where the beauty comes from. See that same trip we went in the Louvre? That's where the most famous painting in the entire world is. And we looked and we saw all these humongous tapestries, these giant paintings. They were incredible and amazing. And then you go into this room that has the most famous painting in the world, the Mona Lisa, and this is what it looks like. Yeah. <laughs> How disappointing is that? And some of you art history majors are going to be like, oh, this is the worst ever. That's amazing. It's because of the little smirk and the androgynous thing. And like, you know, Napoleon made it famous. And then like uh, Pablo Picasso, they thought he stole it in 1911. So that became, who cares? The reason it's famous, the reason everybody kept the painting around for all those hundreds of years, why? Because Leonardo's thinking da Vinci painted it. This person of notable and high renown 
Someone that had a lot of glory in our lifetime. And we held on to it because the original painter, the designer, the creator of this work of art made it. See, the reason that you have glory in your life, the reason that people look on you and you say, man, that's amazing. It's not the Michael Jordans of the world, although they are amazing. It's the Mother Teresa's of the world that I look on and go, wow. Because you can see the light of Christ, the glory of God in them. Uh, First Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 says that Christ in you is the hope of glory, the work of his presence in you, working it out more and more. And and I love what the the message version, I never read this paraphrase version ever. I think the only time I've ever done this, but I love what it says in that same passage in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18. It says, whenever though they turn to face God as Moses did, God removes the veil and they are what? Face to face. Never in the Old Testament could you be face-to-face with the presence of God. They suddenly recognize that God is a living personal presence, not a piece of chiseled stone. And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old constricting legislation or religion is recognized as obsolete. We're free of it, all of us. Nothing between us and God. Our face is shining with the brightness of his face, his glory, And so we are transfigured much like the Messiah. Our lives gradually become brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. It's only like Jesus when we fulfill God's purposes in our lives and we surrender our will to his that people get a glimpse of him and that is beautiful. That is awe-inspiring. That is wonderful. And I've spent the last 20 years of my life going, I am a broken man and God can use anybody. And some of us, we have come here today, and our greatest existence is the nine to five and what we're trying to achieve so we can have some fancy vacations, a nice car or house, so that people will look up to us. And I want to tell you, that glory fades. Like the kid who is still living as a 17-year-old high school football player, now 57 years old, one day you're going to look back and go, none of that mattered. But God at work in me is the hope of the glory of God in our life. And so the third and final point that I want to close with is this. He doesn't just, number one, you didn't have just original glory, and number two, he didn't just restore your glory and continue to pursue you and help you to become more like the image that he created you to be, but number three, he has a, a plan for the eternal glory to rest with him forever. And when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, the scriptures teach us that one day he will return with the trumpet blast, and those who have heard his voice, the good shepherd, they will will come to him and spend eternity as heaven and earth comes together, the perfect paradise with God at the center of it. And whenever I think of heaven, I often think of like Revelation 21, 3 and 4, there'll be no more crying or tears or shame or guilt. The old order has passed away. But I was reminded of, of Revelation 22, And it talks about how God is going to restore its created order since the Garden of Eden. In verse 1, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal. It's a picture of the throne room of God, of what heaven eternally will be like, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, talking about Jesus, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No more war. Healing of the nations has occurred. Verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. 
It'll make you feel like dancing. Maybe you didn't catch that. For thousands of years, if you saw the face of God, you were going to die. No one could stand in the presence and the glory of Almighty God. But because of the work of Jesus on the cross, overcoming the grave itself, that we can step into his glory and we can see him face to face. I don't just believe these are words or a mythology. I believe them to be true. And it's okay if you came here today and you're new to this and you're not there yet. I get it. But as someone who spent a good chunk of my early life doing this with God, wanting nothing to do, I want to tell you that when we get to heaven, if you know Christ, you're going to get to see him face to face. His glory, his presence, tears will be the most magnificent thing you have ever seen. It will bring so much joy and tears, so much emotion all at the same time. And he will give you a new name. It says written on your foreheads there. I don't think literally there will be no more night. Why? They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It says, for now, we only see reflection as in a mirror in this life. Then we shall see face to face. You will look him face to face. And he will know everything about your life. And the Bible teaches us before we go into the throne room of God and we stand in perfect presence with God Almighty and other human beings, no more war and shame and guilt and animosity, but joy and love and peace. Before that happens, we will see our Savior face to face. And Matthew 25 describes it like this, and, and, and this is a harsh reality, but I just, man, I gotta please hear the tone in this. After thinking, there's a chance, well, you know, you start thinking about, man, how many days, hours, weeks have I wasted when you think about the brevity of life? And then Matthew 25, it says that the Jesus, when he returns, he's going to sit, sit on the, the bema seat, on the, the, the judgment seat, and he will separate the sheep from the goats. And the, the sheep were the ones that heard the voice of the good shepherd, and they weren't special. There was nothing great about them. The sheep aren't really intelligent beings, but they listened to the voice of their shepherd, and they surrendered. And he'll separate them from the goats that did not do that. And God, in his compassion, if you have done this to God your entire life, he will give you what you have desired, which is complete separation from it. And it does use the word hell in a literal place to describe, and it's not good the way it describes it. But I don't want to focus on that today. I want to focus on that you, because of the work of Jesus, will get to be in paradise with God Almighty and experience the glory that you have never experienced in this lifetime forever and ever and ever. And I genuinely believe it. And you're going to see that face to face one day. And my question that I started with, whose glory are you living for, matters. Not because you need to earn your salvation. You need to become a good person to get in. Nobody gets in by their work. I don't care the best person, the biggest Peace Corps follower. Any, that doesn't mean you get it. The only work was because Jesus followed the will of his Father and surrendered his life so that we could live eternally with God. And it's only through his work that we can experience it, not by being a good person. There are lots of good people who won't be able to be in the presence of God because we're not glorious enough. And, and, and so in that last moment, what it requires of us, there's one action, one thing you have to do. And that is to surrender, the act of surrendering. There are many ways it describes it. Romans 10, 9, to confess him with your lips. 
I love Galatians 2, verse 20. Paul, the, uh, the apostle, wrote this here. One time he oversaw the killing of Christians. You may feel like a bad person. You ain't killing anybody this week, most likely. <laughs> and he writes in Galatians 2, 20. For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, the hope of glory. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You have to die. You have to surrender in order to experience God's work in your life. To become the original glorious thing you were meant to be. To experience his e eternal glory. And so I'm just going to ask us to respond. And maybe you are here today. And whether it's for the first time or to recommit your life, God's presence is here. May my words be small. But if he spoke to you through scripture today, please acknowledge it. Please respond to it. He created you and redeemed you, and he welcomes you, not with anger and animosity, but with the reckless love we sang about earlier. Come home. I'll leave the 99 for you because you're my son. You're my daughter. I created you. I love you. I don't care what you did last weekend or what you slept with, what you did or who you broke their heart or what happened or the addictive habit. You're not perfected yet. I get it, but I love you, and it takes this action of surrendering to me as Lord. I'm going to invite you to do that right now. God, we worship you as almighty God, creator of the heavens and the earth, whose glory we do not deserve to stand in the presence of. And yet, because of the work of you, Jesus, you are present with us right now, and we could know you and be fully known by you. And so I know that there are people in the room right now who when they see you face to face, they don't know with certainty how you will respond. And the Bible teaches us we can, not through our good works, but through surrendering to you. And so if you're here in the room, whether for the first time or to fully recommit your life to Jesus Christ and his lordship, I'm going to invite you. I'm not going to make you do anything fancy, but with every eye closed and heads bowed, I'm going to count of three, ask you to raise your hand, and then I'm going to invite you to pray something just quietly. God, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for your speaking to already. And so on the count of three, if you want to surrender your life fully to Jesus Christ, raise your hand. One, Jesus loves you. Two, he came to restore you. Three, he wants to live with you for all eternity in his glory. And I see you down here, man, in the front. And the, oh, man, the two people over here and the two people in the back. And the, well, the two people over here, I think, can't see if that's a hand raised or not. Raise it high so I can, I can see over here to the left now. I see you down front. And, and I don't know what's going on. It's not my job to know it's between you and the Lord. But I want to just acknowledge it. Anybody in the back there just I don't want to miss anybody. We saw those people. I, I think seven or eight people over here. So, okay, put those hands down. And pray this with me. Just silently, not out loud. If you've never prayed before, you don't even have to speak out loud. But confess him as Lord here. Pray with me. God... I confess you as Lord of my life. I receive your love, your grace, your forgiveness. And on this day, Easter 2019, I surrender my life fully to your Lordship. Thank you, Jesus, for your work. We love you, and we celebrate that we can be in your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all of God's family said, amen.